What's up, Bikeumer fans? A couple episodes ago, Lachlan Morton shared his plans for an around-the-world record attempt. In this episode, I'm talking to somebody who's actually done it. In 2018, Jenny Graham set the women's speed record for riding 18,000 miles around the world in 124 days and 11 hours. And she did it unsupported without, well, we'll get to that because the extent of her minimalism is pretty remarkable and I want you to hear it in her words. Her story is captured in a new book called Coffee First, Then the World. And we talk about her experience documenting the ride, how she planned for it, the equipment and challenges of keeping a bike going day in and day out, overcoming the physical challenges of such an undertaking, the opportunities it's created for her, and so much more. Please welcome Jenny Graham. Hey, Jenny, welcome to The Bike Rumor Show. Hey, Tyler. Lovely to be chatting with you. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So uh, lately, I've been asking my guests to kind of start things off with a story. But in this case, I think we're going to have a lot of stories within this episode. <laughs> so I really just wanted to start with you know, a question about the book. Where did the name for the book come from? Oh, brilliant. So coffee first, then the world. I think it's definitely become a bit of a life motto as opposed to a book title. Um, and it's uh, particularly when I was going around the world, I would very, very quickly base my whole day around where the first coffee stop would be. Um, so I would literally ride for another hour at night time. So sometimes I'd be riding till like four in the morning, just if it meant I could roll out of my bivy bag and have less than like 5k to ride for coffee. And I just <laughs> find it hugely motivating. And, you know, it just it, it just sort of stays with me forevermore. It's, uh, yeah, it's how I live my life now. <laughs> nice. You need like t-shirts with that on it. Yeah, we've got caps. I've been uh, we've ha- we've had cycling caps. Um, I've been on tour with the book, and uh, I got the cycling caps printed up with coffee first on the on the lid, and it was they just went down so well because so many people can relate to it, can't they? Especially oh, yeah. cyclists. I mean, it's the first thing I do every morning is make coffee. So yeah, foam roll while it's brewing, and then the yeah. day's going. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. So we're going to talk about uh, the book a lot, but uh, just real quick, you, the book comes came out June fourteenth, right? Our eighteenth, middle of June. <laughs> uh, yeah. So in the in the UK, it came out mid April, and then US is two months later. So uh, I think okay. maybe about the thirteenth of June. Okay. Why is that? Why different launch dates? Right? I have no idea. Like, I have no idea about this world. I just get told what's happening and I'm like, that's cool. Yeah, well, (laughs) that's good. Delegate, right? One less, you don't need to worry about it. So you just finished a a UK book tour. And so the, the, your PR or your agent, I guess that we've been, I've been emailing back and forth with, there there must've been a missing word in there. Cause she's like, she just got back from a 1200 bike tour or bike shop tour. And I'm like, She's no way you rode to twelve hundred bike shops. So was it like twelve hundred kilometers, twelve hundred miles? I love that twelve hundred bike shops. Can you imagine? Oh my I mean, goodness! I, I, I doubt there's even that many. Like over I there. would yeah. actually, I chat myself. I've already <laughs> out chatted myself. Um, yeah, so it was a twelve hundred mile um, book tour. So I did it on my bike. I figured nice. that was the best way to promote and celebrate um, a book about cycling is literally to cycle between all the venues. So I did that and started way down south and 
and basically um, I I decide I reached out to loads of different bike clubs and communities like st- places where I knew cool stuff was happening and said hey I'm coming to town I had my um, friend Catherine done with me she was doing loads of PR stuff on the road um, and managing uh, bits and so I was like we're coming through town like do you like do you want to go out for a ride what, what's happening um, and so when folk got back to me and said yeah there's like great bike scene here come along then I would base a talk there and so it was very much like a wiggly line up the UK just going from amazing bike community to amazing bike community and it just like spurred me on between all the stops it was incredible yeah that's awesome so uh, at the very end I do I'm, I'm really curious I'm always curious about the business side so I would love to talk to you about the the publishing and how that works and all that but um we can save that for the end So I'm curious, like this is not a small task riding around the world and and not just riding around the world, but like racing, like trying to do it as fast as possible. Like, I don't imagine many people are looking at like the hour record and thinking I'm going to try and beat that, let alone like an around the world record. So what motivated you to do this? Like what planted the seed in your head? It's so funny, like when you've got endurance running through your bloodstream like I do, then you just assume that everybody is about to do it. Like surely it's at the forefront of everyone's mind. And I remember saying that to a friend, like I better do it quick before someone else does. And they were like, I think you're safe. (laughs) Like I think you're okay. Um, But I think for me, it was definitely that like, I was just so um, curious about the miles that I was able to do, where my head was going when I was doing these things. I was just in such a good place with it. And I had I felt like I'd really found myself in this like long distance endurance world Um, and then I just kept pushing it like how much further how much further you know how much faster could I ride Um, and then until I ended up at round the world you know I'd been I'd sort of been taking part in like races like you must heard of like the um, uh, Highland Trail 550 like Scottish classics about to start tomorrow actually Um, Highland Trail 550. I was over in Arizona, did the Arizona 750, um, like going right right the way from um, Mexico to Utah, all on my mountain bike. And was just like every time I went out and did an event like that, I was like blown away by it. Um, And so I was chasing the miles, you know, I was really discovering that about myself when I met a coach called John Hampshire. And he had, I'd been on a training camp with um, the Adventure Syndicate and they had, uh, John had offered his services for free and I'd never done any structured coaching before, like no structured <laughs> training. I was just winging it. it, was just riding long ways, asking everyone I knew, like, what should I do? How do I get fitter? How do I get faster? And when I met John, I was like a sponge. I was just soaking up absolutely everything he was saying. Um, and after I left that camp, he messaged me, he emailed me and he was like, you know, I love what you're doing, Jenny. I know you know, you're not in a position to buy a coach. You know, I was I was a mum. I was like, had my son Lachlan. I was working full time. I really didn't have that much sort of spare cash to then put into um, my essentially my hobby. Um, I, it was spent on fixing bikes and, you know, getting tickets to go places. So uh, there was no way that I would have been able to justify the money or get the money up together. And so he was like, look, 
I'll, I'd love to give you a year's free coaching just to see like where it might go, you know, just um, write about it, blog about it, whatever. I'm sure I'll get more business through you. But um, yeah, have this for free. Um, and I, that was it. That was my moment. You know, like Charlie in the Chocolate Factory, you know, Willy <laughs> yeah. Wonka, when Willy Wonka gives out the golden tickets and like Charlie gets it. And he's like, this is life changing. This is his life changing moment. That's what I felt like reading that, um, reading that email. I was coming, I was <clears throat> coming back to Scotland. I had work the next day. Um, I'd like had to, yeah, I'd scraped together so much, like the money that I needed to, like I'd got a bursary place on the camp, scraped together the flight costs. It was like, you know, and then I just had somebody like offering me this year's free coaching. And I was at the point in my life that I was like, I think I could keep going forever. Um, and so it was just like this perfect combination. And it was when I was out in the States, actually, that I started scrolling through my phone. I'd finished Arizona and I was in an absolute mess. I just carried my bike through the Grand Canyon. There's like a 24 mile hiker bike um, and I'd carried it through the Grand Canyon and I was in a state and I was in that like perfect, you know, when you're just like so done in, but also like super inspired about what could possibly come next. Um, and that's when I saw the record, like that's when I saw the distances, the times and I was like, I might be able to have a shot at that. Like I might be able to do that. But it was big chat. It was such big chat. Yeah. I don't know too many people that are in the middle of something like a 750 mile anything with a 24 mile hike a bike and all of a sudden get inspired to do more. That usually comes like a days or weeks later, I think. Oh yeah, it was at the end. Yeah, it was at the end. I was out of the canyon. We'd um, hit, we'd got to Utah border and hitched a lift back to um, uh, Las Vegas and had two days because we were meant to ride to the airport and then we had these two days. So got a hotel with a pool and lay by the pool, too exhausted to do anything except for think up the next big adventure. <laughs> That's great. So when you started this, you started in Scotland and then which way did you go? Oh, I didn't start in Scotland. I started in Berlin. Oh. So I went out to Europe. Yeah. Um, and that was simply because your time is like when you're, you're all your travel time and transit time is included in your overall time. So hmm. if I started in Scotland, then it was another transit to get to the mainland. Um, if not, I would have loved to start here. Like imagine starting in Inverness. That would have been amazing up in the Highlands. But yeah, mainland Europe was the place that made sense. Um, to get the most, you know, um, bang for your back, as it were. So, yeah, that's what I did. Um, started there and went east and went right the way, like across, you know, the rest of Europe, Lithuania, Latvia and Poland. And uh, then I was into Russia and I went, spent a long time in Russia. I went all the way across Russia to Lake Baikal um, and then down to Mongolia and China. And that was like leg one. Yeah, that I mean, man, those areas sound amazing. But I guess we should timestamp this. So you did the ride in 2018 because clearly we wouldn't be riding through Russia right now uh, with what's going on. And and I'm curious, were there other spots that, well, yeah, any spots that you went through that you're kind of like, ooh, I wish I would have routed around this or? 
I mean, yeah, the uh, Trans-Siberian Highway. So people in Russia, incredible, gorgeous, as long as they're not driving. <laughs> like behind a steering wheel, just it was absolutely crazy. Um, and east of Moscow, the, um, it was, things got, yeah, pretty spicy. It was, it was ridiculously dangerous for me to be there to the point that I started riding through the night because it was too dangerous to be on the road through the day. There was the, the traffic was too heavy. Nobody knew that I was going to be there. Nobody expected me to be there. I would just hear beeps from behind me and have to leap off the road. Um, and then like all these trucks would come flying past. So yeah, it was pretty nasty. Um, so there was definitely that bit that was like, I will never come back here ever again. Not even in a car. I would not go back to that bit of road. Is how did you plan your route? Because this it seems like such a massive undertaking, just the logistics of it. It's huge, right? But I lucked out big time because in 2017, Mark Beaumont, another Scottish endurance rider who holds the overall and the male record for riding around the world, he'd gone out and ridden around the world supported. Um, so with a crew and stuff with him and his aim was to do it in under 80 days and he and he did he did it in like 78 and a half days I think um, and he'd done that the year before so I'd spoke to Mark about it um, quite a bit before I left and there was bits of the route that I wasn't going to do I was going to spend more time in Kazakhstan rather than all that time in Russia and all these like a few different ideas and, and it all came back to like win prediction Basically, him and his team had plotted the fastest possible route around the world. Um, and so I was like, well, do you mind if I give give that a go and go support it, go unsupported on it? So just go myself. Um, and I changed a few bits of it to make that work. But um, and the start and the finish. But essentially, it was it was Mark's route. Yeah. Why do it unsupported? I mean, it's the grassroots of the whole thing, isn't it? Like for me, you know, I made a film, I made a film about it. This was a good example of like how things could have changed. So for me, I love traveling in the way that I can go as hard as I can, but equally know that I have got literally no one to bail me out. I have to look after myself. I have to make decisions for myself out there. Um, and I get a buzz of that. Like I love, you know, communicating with people, finding resources, like all the other things. It's almost like the things that you get while when you're touring. Like I love that aspect of it but equally I like having the the sort of push and the um the purpose I suppose just to keep going just to keep going um and so I, re I really really like that but when we were putting the film idea together and looking at different ways to do that you know a crew had like I had a crew on board filmmakers that were willing to look up funding and come around the world with me and and I was just like I just don't want it like I don't want in interactions with anyone I know. I don't want the safety net of if the shit really hits the <laughs> fan. I know of people that are 20 miles away. Now, it's a very different mindset, isn't it? Then, you know, then yeah, it doesn't matter if they never handed me a Mars bar. At the end of the day, I, I know that they wouldn't let me die. Um, and so I quite like the commitment of going alone. Yeah, I, not having an exit, like, like no escape plan kind of forces you to go through with it all right like exactly i imagine there were some days where you're like oh man <laughs> like 
<laughs> I, I wish I had a support band right now or something. Oh, I, when I was coming out down Alaska, I was so freaked out about the bears. Oh my God. And I'd watch these massive RVs go past and I've never wanted an RV so much in my life. <laughs> it's like, that must be lovely. Uh, yeah, I imagine the RVs were a little bit of a shock too because the RVs in the rest of the world are like half the size of a US RV. Huge. Yeah, they're, they're huge, they're aren't they? Yeah, amazing. And I, again, if it wasn't, uh, you know, in, in, in my everyday life, I'd be like, oh, that looks oh, like, you know, that's not my thing. Uh, but out there, I was like, oh, that could definitely be my thing. Why am I in an RV? <laughs> <laughs> the um, So you mentioned the filming. I was going to ask about like how you chronicled this, because in the book, it's kind of like a day by day journal. And so like at the end, you know, were you journaling at the end of the day? Because honestly, I can't, if I had to sit down and write in detail about my last three rides, I would struggle. And you've got 124 days worth of rides right. with you know, a good bit of detail. So like, how did you kind of chronicle that as you were going? Yeah, that was really difficult. So I didn't ever do that for a book or for, you know, the podcast or the film. I literally did it so for Guinness, because Guinness, the Guinness World Records need you to keep evidence every day. And I started writing a diary and I think I made it six days or something with writing and the <laughs> writing got worse and worse and worse. And then I was just stopped. And my big sister, I was on the, like, the phone to her one day and I was like, I've stopped taking notes. I'm just too exhausted. And she's like, oh my God, like you have to like start recording them because I was keeping audio diaries so she was like start doing them in your audio diaries every time you speak into your phone just give us the stats you know just like and we'll keep up to date with it um, and she's like it'll come, in, it'll come in handy in the future Jen just do it um, but it was all focused on on getting it ratified by Guinness so I started doing that and then of course it gave me all this content for the book. Yeah. So was the book an idea before you started this or the documentary or anything, or are you just going to go do it? And then like afterwards, you're like, huh, there's a little story to tell here. Yeah, exactly. So the um, the film was a thing straight away, simply because I met filmmakers who had seen me out in Arizona and they wanted to do some, like, make some cool films. So they were on board straight away. And then that helped me get funding to, you know, to get the money together because then I've got a film and the brands can get exposure on that. So um, that that was really helpful. And then very, very last minute, I started, um, I, I did a big fundraiser in my local town and a woman came along, Penny Latin, who was a radio producer for the BBC. And she said, record it. I know you're filming, but voice record it. And we'll make, like, I'll put them out on the radio I'll get someone to buy and you know we'll follow your progress so it'll be perfect just do this and she gave me some top tips um, and so then then I was doing audio so all of a sudden I was like doing film on my phone and it was very like diary diary stuff it wasn't like setting up any shots and you know getting beautiful places it was literally my head in front of amazing places just like talking nonsense so um, I I, yeah, that was the two things. But I never wanted to write a book. Like I've never been, 
um, much of a writer at all. In fact, it was like probably my least favourite way of communicating because it stressed me out so much, like having to sit down and think about it and pull apart what I meant. Um, so the, uh, the book writing process took a long time, but it also came much later, mm-hmm. much, much later. Yeah, the the filming, I was going to ask about equipment. You mentioned your phone. So did you also have like a GoPro or something like that on the bike or on your helmet or anything? Yeah, so I had like, it's bizarre now when I look at, you know, I'm, I I make a lot more media now and filmmaking and stuff now. And I just think the stuff that I took was so basic. I had this hundred pound Motorola phone that oh I, you know, that was, uh, yeah, it was like such poor quality, but it worked so well because I could, you know, put storage cards in it. The back came off it easy. I could put SIM cards in it. So it's just like what I had. And that's what I went with and then I had this 360 degree camera um, that was fitted to the handlebars at the the front of the bike Um, but it was very very new I think their technology is way better now like I've seen footage of it now and it's like really incredible it was still quite grainy at the time Um, and because we had when the filmmaker was fitting it to the bike it should have sat upright it was like a tubular sort of shape it should have sat upright and he put it in the middle of my tri-bar sort of bridge <laughs> and sat upright and I was like not a hope like that is that is not even going to get me out of Berlin like that needs to lie flat and it needs to lie flush and we'll tape it down or like zip tie it down but nothing can stay like that the whole way around the world um, and so we did that but it meant when I came back he I, there was no editing like you know the editing um, sort of suite was really basic again at the time so it meant all the footage was sideways and so he had to go in and like change it all around and then I never ended up getting that good footage from it because it was um it was yeah it was always clarted and you know caked and mud and stuff but I mean it was it it was gritty yeah and and so so we got away with it (laughs) well let's talk about the other equipment because unsupported I imagine you have to bring a lot of stuff with you um it yeah tell me like what did you carry and what did you kind of plan on getting along the way so I basically, if I'm going out for the weekend now, I take way more with me than I ever did. It's <laughs> like going around the world. It's ridiculous. I was so minimalistic. I needed a sleeping system so as I could sleep out like wherever I needed to just get, get some downtime. And so I had a bivy bag, a really lightweight bivy bag, a really lightweight sleeping bag and a tiny little roll mat. Um, and then I had, I didn't take any cooking equipment. I didn't take any spare clothes except for one extra pair of bibs. So my bibs were the only thing I took two of. Um, Like no extra socks, no extra, yeah, like pants or anything like that. It was just like my riding kit, a couple of layers, waterproofs. um, And I always had like these uh, little lycra, they had no bibs, they had no chamois in them, but like little lycra shorts and a woolly top that I slept in um, and a hat. 
and that was it. And then the mechanical stuff, it was, you know, like just bare minimum again, what's going to stop me on my tracks? If it meant, you know, if a bit of kit would have been nice to have, but actually, I could, you know, it wouldn't stop me if it went wrong, then there was no way I was taking it. It just, um, and it was as much to do with space, to be honest, than it was um, weight. Um, yeah, because you're like, Oh, and battery packs as well. Sorry, yeah, I had like all my electricals took up quite a lot of space, like to keep keep my my phone charged, GPS charged, all my lights on the go. I had a Dynamo hub, and that would feed onto battery packs. So, um, but I just had one massive saddlebag. I think maybe an eighteen liter, seventeen or eighteen liter saddlebag, half a frame bag. You know, a couple of um, uh, what's it called? Some um, feed bags and a top tube bag for my electricals, and that was it. Like, yeah, tiny amount. Yeah, that's super minimal. What about the bike? What what were you riding, and like, what what kind of group, and like, what was the bike setup? Oh man, bike was gorgeous, still is gorgeous. Um, I took her on tour with me for for the promoting the book. She's called Little Pig, and <laughs> she is an absolute dream. Uh, she's a steel frame, so a Scottish a Scottish brand. Shand, um, Shand Stushy is her model, and they um, yeah, built in Scotland, steel frame, and then carbon components. Everything on it was carbon, so steel for the comfort of. Getting getting on and on every day and like sitting on the bike for that amount of time um, and also like weldability and things like that just to make that bomber and then all the components on it were carbon so like semi-deep se- uh, se- section rims again Scottish Scottish um, Scottish built hand uh, wheel builder and the group set now I think it was I should people and uh, nobody's asked me this for such a long time I thought I was going to get nailed on the tour, but people have, have let that go. But um, I think it was the, Ald- it was definitely Shimano because I figured I could get Shimano easier all, all the way around the world. It would be easier to change out. Um, and Altegra was the group set. Yeah, I'm looking at the, the cover of the book now and it, it looks like an Altegra brake lever anyway. So Yeah, it was Altegra. And I, but I did something with the back. I think I put on a mountain bike cassette. So as I got a 36 maybe out of it because the road one, like you only get like 32. So I had a little bit more sort of given the gearing and it was a two by. Yeah. <gasps> I am so pleased I remembered all that. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Were yeah. you, but you used a road derailleur. Oh, and Richie, and you to... Richie components as yeah. well. So Richie like uh, kitted it out with their like handlebars and stem stem bars and stuff like that. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah, they make good stuff. Um, yeah, they make real. So good did stuff. you have to switch to a mountain bike rear derailleur, or were you able to make that road derailleur work with the bigger cassette? As long as it was a medium, I think I needed a medium cage to make it work, and it just worked it was like it just worked and no more and at the time I mean I was so into this at the time on the year build up to it I could have told you every component the brand of cable (laughs) oh honestly I was so into it and it's amazing how like you know because it's not my thing actually in real life so um, yeah then it just goes but I remember I didn't even know there was different sizes of um, derailleur cages and stuff so at the time I was like right I'm shoot it was like the medium the the medium one worked on both or i had to get along or whatever 
but yeah. Were there any kind of odd fixes or replacement parts you had to find along the way or any sort of hacks that you had to do just to keep it rolling? Yeah. Oh man, you can imagine, can't you? So I was like, um, every continent I arrived on, I had a full overhaul of the bike because each of them were around, um, say, 5,000 miles, sorry, five to 6,000 miles. Um, so I would be trying to get as much as I could out of the components until then. And then when I, you know, like when I was a sort of in transit before or just after, then that was the easiest time. But that didn't always work out. Um, and so um, my tyres, I mean, of course, they were they were popping all over the place. I went for, I had Continental 4000s, but I changed my rims just before I left because my free hub started sticking on the wheels I was going to take. And then <clears throat> the tyres that I tried and tested, um, at the time, this was six years ago, I couldn't have gone tubeless. They just weren't giving me enough miles. They weren't durable enough. I reckon now I probably could have, but um, at the time, so I had to go with tubes, um, but they wouldn't sit properly on the rims. And oh my God, like every time I got a puncture, it would take me about 40 minutes to seat the tyre. Oh, so yeah, that was that was tiring. Um, and I would get like run out of oil and I was using all sorts of things like sun cream, sardine oil, oil you know I'd get um, I'd get like oily fish and just like get that on the tra- chain and then eat the fish for lunch oh my gosh. Um, I would yeah have um I had um I, I would like tie my my, kept, my cleats kept wearing through on my on my shoes and so I would just tie my feet onto my pedals <laughs> uh, and like hope that I didn't have to stop with my left foot or I put my left foot down and just tie it on with a hairband um and I I got when I got to Alaska actually I went into it's at Palmer that's just out of Anchorage. Palmer, it's like 60k out of Anchorage. And an amazing shop there. They were so, so kind. And their and my brake lever had gone. So I thought it was a cable, but it was actually my whole lever had just stopped working. Like I'd I used it. And um, they didn't have one store, but they stripped one off or a similar one off the mechanics bike and gave it to me. But of course, that meant like a full brake bleed and everything. And the shop was meant to be shut that day, but they just like, yeah, they just heard what I was doing and were like, come on in, have some pizza, we'll make you coffee and and strip down his bike. So I would ride a broken bike for a long time and then I would find absolutely gems of bike shops that would just get me up and rolling again. Yeah, that's awesome. I, yeah, I can't imagine the wear and tear that puts on stuff. Yeah. How did you plan food? Because there's got to be stretches where there's just nothing, right? Like no Mm. restaurants, no cafes. And so you would have to bring some food with you. But did the majority of it, you just planned on stopping at restaurants and whatnot? Yeah. So I I didn't decided not to take a stove because if I stopped to eat, then it would be good just to be resting. Um, And that meant that some of the bigger stretches, I might go like a day and a half without hitting anywhere, without hitting any either, you know, resources or places that would open. Because I was mostly on main roads the whole way around the world, it was like, you know, 
normally within a day there'd be a gas station or there'd be you know there'd be something with basic sort of food in it um, <clears throat> it's not like being in the mountains you know for weeks at a time so yeah I had enough space to carry sort of what I thought I might need for like a day and a half and um, and it sort of, it mostly worked I've got I had no eating plan whatsoever <laughs> except for eat just lots eat a and lot, often. Eat whenever you can. I guess if you saw something, you would just, maybe if you weren't hungry right then, you just stop and get something just to have. Yeah, definitely. And any excuse to stop, you know, you're just like, <laughs> oh, great. There's somewhere to stop. Um, and you mostly are hungry. Like, so all the way across Russia, it was all gas stations, service stations, um, with the occasional like restaurant when I serve veggies and stew but quite a lot of the time going into Mongolia it was a lot of sugar and uh, super noodles that were sort of keeping me going and then I got down to Australia and I was like could order food again and I was like on onto a winner and I was yeah it was just getting all these like um, road houses that they had out there and that was that was quite easy to get food but then coming um, yeah coming down the Yukon it was remote so remote, you know, like, uh, of course. Um, and so that bit I was, I had to, yeah, there was a few mornings that I was like, oh, I'm sort of chewing on stale food and hoping that I'm going to find somewhere quite soon. Um, but th- then I hit the tin, Tim Hortons when I got oh, into goodness. Canada <laughs> and they just like fueled me the whole way across that Tim bits. It was like, I don't know what I would have done without them. Um, oh, they- they have some good donuts for sure. Yeah, they're real good donuts. But you know, when you're eating that stuff all the time, oh, some days I would just crave vegetables and just make it my mission to find broccoli. Like whatever I did that day, I had <laughs> to find some broccoli. Um, and yeah, and I, I think partly what, you know, what worked well for me is that I do like I can literally eat anything like I've, I'm a really good eater I don't have to remind myself to eat I'm literally always hungry um, whether I'm riding my bike or not so and then I, I don't have a particular diet I mean now I'm vegetarian sort of probably would be much harder for me to do that but at the time I wasn't and I would just eat anything and um, yeah that would yeah it works for you Hey real quick I wanted to let you know this Bike Rumor podcast is brought to you by The Pros Closet. Spring is the perfect time to upgrade your ride. From top brands to niche names, TPC has a curated selection of new and certified pre-owned bikes for every discipline. Each certified pre-owned bike is inspected, tested, and serviced by expert mechanics. And every bike includes risk-free 30-day returns. Visit theprosecloset.com slash bike rumor and enter code BRPODCAST to save $40 on every order over $200. And now back to our episode. This Bike Rumor podcast was brought to you by The Pros Closet. Wherever you ride, The Pros Closet has road, mountain, gravel, and e-bikes to get you there. TPC carries a curated selection of new and certified pre-owned bikes and a constantly expanding selection of parts, accessories, and apparel with available financing and competitive pricing. TPC has everything you need to gear up this season. Visit theprosecloset.com slash bike rumor. And enter code BR podcast to save forty dollars on every order over two hundred. How did you deal with currencies? Because 
that's a lot of different countries, a lot of different money systems. Um, yeah. You just bring a credit card. but Because uh, I know like Europe, I, you know, nowadays they do. But, you know, even as recent as like 10 years ago, it was there's a lot of places in Europe that really didn't want to take a credit card or just flat out didn't. Yeah, I know. I was a bit worried about that. So I had, I did, you know, ridiculously, I didn't take a credit card with me, which wow. sounds no. when I look back on it, I'm like, wow, you could have got into real trouble there. But um, at the time, I think there was just like a billion other things to think about. So uh, I never got around to the credit card, but I did have two bank cards and then one of them got swallowed in a machine. Oh, no. And so I was going on one bank card and I am not joking. I am notorious for losing my bank cards. I'm on like <laughs> issue 27 or something like that. It's like, it was so silly. Um, and so when I said to like friends and family, oh no, like one of my bank cards got swollen, everyone was like, no. Like, what's going to happen? She'll never keep hold of that bank card. Like, she can't, like, walk out of the house with it and she loses it. So uh, it was, like, such a stress every day making sure that I didn't lose it. Uh, and then I would just take money out. I had some money on me, like, wrapped up in, like, and stashed on the bike or on me, different currencies. Um, but then I would just stop and, and get some out. Um, the bigger continents or countries were much easier, you know, um, um, it was just sort of going going across Europe, really. That was the the sort of biggie. Interesting. So I remember hearing about Ram athletes race across America having like some serious neck pain issues. And the, the one story that sticks in my head is this one guy even like put a, a stick down the back of his jersey to make a splint and like duct taped his helmet to it just to hold his head up because he just he physically could not do it anymore. But like, and that's a comparatively short event compared to what you did. Like, was neck pain or an issue for you? Or like, what were some of the other physical issues that came up? Yeah, that's Sherman's. Is it Sherman's neck? Is that what that's called? I think so, yeah. I think it's something like that. My friend had it recently and um, was out in Morocco and had a toilet roll like stuck underneath <laughs> his neck to keep his neck up. And so all oh, no. these beautiful pictures in these lovely places and he's got like this toilet roll. It was so funny. Um, no, like, yeah, thankfully I didn't get that. But I mean, I guess I was really well conditioned to my setup. Um, I probably wasn't as aero as they are in RAM. I don't know if that's a thing. Um, you know, I was definitely set up for comfort. Like I've had I've had real neck issues before when my tri bars have been too low and I'm too aero. And so like I had some stackers on them. I basically just had a really comfortable setup. Um, but I was continuously worried that my body was about to fall apart and that I wouldn't have done enough stretching and conditioning and uh, got some stretches of I went to like physio, a sports massage um, woman, my friend, before I left a lot. I was going to her and then she like mapped me out these um, exercises that I could do while lying down. She's like, you don't even have to like get up and do this. Just lie in your bed and stretch, stretch out like this. And so whenever I got sore, I would do some of them. And when I would just ride really slowly at the start of the day and then just like rub the bottle on my legs and stretch out my Achilles and and it was remarkable what 
that my body still worked you know I, I found it really difficult to like get on and off um, the bike towards the end um, I was fine when I was just riding my wrists got really sore going across Russia so it's all that that you know like you've trained your legs it's actually like all the connectors that's um, that's probably like the bits that were getting sore but yeah just I put duct tape all around my handlebars at one point just to give me extra cushioning. Um, yeah, just stuff like that. Yeah, I was just going to ask if you had like double wrapped your bars, but how much, if you had to guess, like what percentage of your time did you spend on the, the tops or the hoods or the drops versus like the aero bars? I spent a lot of time in the aero bars because they're so comfortable. They uh, they shouldn't even be called aero bars because they weren't that <laughs> <Comfort> aero. <bars. laughs> they were comfort bars. They were like my office, my eating bars where I could just like, <laughs> you know, make up sandwiches as I was going. Oh, that's um, hilarious. Yeah, I I've, I mean, I, the beauty about having them was that you could just move around them. You know what I did a lot, actually? I sat up and rode, but I would just put my hands on the rests, on the armrests, and stretch out my back. And that was like a really nice sort of another position that I could go into. Because if you're riding like 15 hours a day, then you don't want to be in one position for a very long time. I don't think I even want to ride for 15 hours a day. So. <laughs> um, as a woman, you know, one of the health things you also have to worry or not worry, but you have a menstrual cycle to think of. So like, is there anything yeah. you'd share about that? Yeah. Oh God. I know it was such a pain in the ass. <laughs> Oh my God. I did think about getting it, like stopping it. You know, you can take um, an injection and they stop. Yeah, or just birth for a few control months. pills or something, right? Birth control pills. I mean, there's no way I would have been able to carry, like, imagine 124 pills. Um, it, like, imagine how much that is. Like, that's a huge amount to add to this, like, really tight space. Uh, considering I, I didn't even have any pants with me, you know, I had no extra shoes with me. So the thought of taking a bag of tablets. Um, but also, there was something about allowing my body to just be as it needed to be and not to be covered up with anything that I was really like wanted. Um, I thought it would stand me in good stead. I know my body really well. Um, and yeah, just wanted it to do its thing basically and sort of held out for like, maybe they'll stop. You know, sometimes they stop when you're under too much pressure, physical pressure, but they didn't, uh, <laughs> which was partly a relief sometimes. I was like, that's cool because uh, it means I've still got more in the tank. But um, yeah, in in hot countries, it was much easier to deal with because you can just wash your bibs, dry them on the back of your bike and like wear a spare set and just like cycle it like that that um through yeah like um in the hotter countries in the colder countries it was much harder like it was winter in Australia and it rained constantly like all the time it was wet so um if I would be like if, if during the few days that um uh, I was on my menstrual cycle then I would need to wash my bibs maybe uh, like twice a day and so then you're stopping washing or wiping and then drying off and drying them in hand and like in cafe toilets and stuff like that so it's just like an, another thing to think about um, and also it makes you 
um, like you have to really watch your saddle sores because it like completely changes how things are feeling. Um, you know, if you if if you leak any blood onto your bibs, then it's like you get a rash really quickly, or like you've got this friction. And so, like keeping things clean, or you know, when you're out and like, yeah, it's it's a lot to manage, basically. But yeah, baby wipes and toilet blocks. That's yeah, that is a lot to think about. What uh, and I guess the the alternative there, like you mentioned, getting the injection or the um, yeah. I don't know if they still do the thing that was it transdermal the oh, stuff you the put rod. under the skin. Uh, I guess, but I yeah. imagine that would like you don't if you haven't ever done that, you don't know how that's going to affect your hormones, and that could have like played exactly. a real mind game on you, right? Exactly. Like, you know, and you're like freaking out yeah. about nothing or everything or. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I'd been off any hormone like or any uh, birth control for years at that point. And so the thought of then starting to take it um, and then I'd never not had a period either. I'd never, t- you know, um, some of my friends take like have coils and then they never they never have a period. It's like I'd never done that. So the thought of it, like, yeah, all the unknowns were was too much. Yeah. So I imagine doing something like this at a casual pace could very easily fill a year of time, right? As opposed to like four months-ish. Yeah. But, you know, leave plenty of days for having fun off the bike. You know, doing this and trying to like beat a record or doing it for time, did it take some of the fun out of it? It's funny, like I personally don't think so. Like I love touring and I love um, racing. And I think that, oh, you know, you still get high, like you still watch the sun coming up, you still turn a corner and are like, this is incredible. You know, like all the things that you get from living on your bike is still happening. You're still like, we say racing, but actually you're not really going any faster than you would on a tour. You might even be going slower. You're just not stopping. So you're capturing moments, like you're seeing it all, you're smelling it all. That's That stuff's still all there. And then the interactions that you're having with people, because you know that you don't have the option, like any choice you're making, the clock is ticking on it, then you just end up having these really intense, intimate moments with complete strangers that you know you'll probably never see again. And they're so special. It's like you're in that moment, you lock eyes and, you know, you'll remember those eyes forevermore. And then you leave again. And there's something very, very beautiful about it that not everything, like, you know, we don't have to pursue everything. We don't have to... um, yeah, I guess like spend all that time to get something lovely out of a connection. So, yeah, what do they call that? Like single serve friendships or something? Or there's a term for it I've heard that was perfect, but what was it called? Like single single serve friends or single serve friends. Oh, that was brilliant. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and 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 you know, I just imagine um, certainly in some of the places that I was going through in Mongolia and China, where I was blown away by the culture, but they were also blown away by me. Like they'd clearly never seen a woman alone on a bike. Like I don't even know if they'd seen a man there on a bike. They were just like, "What the hell?" and <laughs> 
these times that we had that we'd have you just think oh wow I wonder what that like what effect that had on them like seeing me doing this you know and then I yeah like I remember them like I wonder if they remember stopping to help me or to you know share a can of coke with me or, or yeah what have you. I'm, I'm sure they do right because it's so out of the ordinary like you said right it's like I think those tend to create the most memorable things is something unexpected and just yeah really unique yeah do you look back and think, okay, that was fun, well done, what's next? Or is part of you thinking, ooh, you know, like I could have done this better, I could have been faster here, maybe I should try that again? <laughs> I hope I never try that again. <laughs> <laughs> Just because I had such an incredible time. Like I really, really did. It was, you know, it was hard and gritty and messy and um, just wonderful like what an incredible experience and particularly at that time in my life it, it you know I could never go and recreate that and so I hope I'm a bit more imaginative um with what to do rather than just falling into this like ego trap of chasing something that I've already had when the next woman goes out to to take the record and I think I've um particularly now the book's out you know, like, that's great. I can't wait to see the next woman to go out there. There's only three of us that have held the record. And I have um, I was the first, like, fully unsupported. And so compared to 13 guys, I think, and loads unsupported, like at least half of them. Um, and so I just think, yeah, like, we've got catching up to do and it doesn't all have to be me. Yeah. What was, uh, I'm curious, because you mentioned with the film crew that they were able to go get sponsors for you or the fact that it was going to be filmed helped you get sponsors. What did it cost to do this? Yeah, so it was, I worked this out by basically averaging, uh, my three main costs were uh, transport. So between like major long haul flights and I wouldn't have very much time to book them. So last minute long haul flights, food and accommodation, and then a bit in the bank for if it went wrong and I needed to fix my bike. But that was like the big spends that I needed. And so I just averaged throughout the world what each country would sort of roughly cost um, for a couple of meals and accommodation every third night. And then I came to a rough budget of 50 15 grand and just stuck with it. I was like, well, I'll just make that work. If I can get 15 grand together, I'll do it in 15. And uh, and I did. That's I managed to get like wow. half of it through brand sponsorship, um, like the Adventure Syndicate, um, a US a US brand, um, had come on board as well, communications brand, and just yeah, got that money together. And then I raffled off to get the rest of it. I raffled off my bike, so I was a Blackburn Ranger in 2017. Oh, nice. You know the Blackburn Ranger oh, yeah, scheme. Yeah. So I won the like Blackburn Scottish Blackburn Ranger and and package, and it came with all these like amazing things and and um, including a Niner bike, a Niner mountain bike, which is gorgeous. It was the best bike I'd ever had, and I rode it for a year and then I I was like well I'll raffle this bike off it's like my biggest asset and so I raffled it off for £10 a raffle ticket and just said to people all your all the money will go towards um, like me trying to go around the world so not only did I get the money coming in for this raffle for the bike but it also like really built momentum and like got people bought into the, uh, the idea that I was going to go and do this and then I had a big fundraiser in my local town 
down and yeah that was like the rest of the money between the bike and the and the fundraiser so that's really um, cool so you were yeah. in, well i want to clarify just because you know you're scottish i'm in the u.s so when you say 15 grand fifteen thousand pounds okay so maybe for us 20 grand i'm thinking maybe yeah US, yeah that, that would like be that. about right yeah and that was like that. that was also five ish almost six years ago six years but, ago um that still seems really cheap like i if i had had to guess before you said anything i was going to say like maybe 50 grand would make it possible yeah but i should just say like a 15 grand made it possible to to race like to seriously race race like um you know not have to count when i went count how much money i was spending when i was finding a hotel or finding some food or whatever um not that very extravagant anyway but you know sometimes there is only one place to eat or to sleep but if i had a bigger budget Oh man, that would have been nice. You know, I would have been able to get, well, actually rest on my flights. Like all my flights were just um, like regular cheap long haul seats that you're squished in Oof. between heaps of other people. And I'd never flown long haul before. I didn't know what what a big effect that was that would have on like my resting ability. And so I'd arrive off the flights and my flights were always my rest. I didn't have any rest days. I was like, I'll just rest when I'm flying. And of course, you don't rest when you're flying like that. You only rest if you've got a budget to buy really nice beds on a plane. Um, and so although I could do it within 15, if I had 50, then yeah, it would have been faster. Yeah. Did you um, have to just find like a crate to put your bike in? Like, how did you fly with your bike? I just got in touch with bike shops and um, before I went out, or they reached out to me sometimes and asked a mechanic, always a really enthusiastic <laughs> mechanic involved, and they would arrive at the um, at the airport with oh, some nice. duct tape and, and the <laughs> box. And because it fitted into my self-supported rules, because I was like, at least um, it's like open, a service that's open to everyone. They weren't doing me a special favour. They would help anyone that was doing that. So, um, that was cool I, like I'd always set up saying right I'm coming into town I'm going to come to your bike shop get a bike overhaul and then we'll package it up and I'll go to the airport and as the days got closer and closer to the deadline of the plane I was always running late and then it would be like a quick phone call could you possibly like get to the airport and like take the bike and I won't bother fixing the bike and uh, take the box and yeah so anyway really enthusiastic mechanics yeah that's not so did you have any kind of flights planned ahead of time or it seems like there's so many variables that you mentioned having yeah. to buy like day of or kind of last minute tickets is that just because yeah. you didn't know when you'd be there yeah, exactly. You don't know when you're going to be there, and uh, but you also have to guess because to get into quite a lot of the countries, you need to give them an exit date mm. and you need to buy your flight. But because I was doing all my own logistics, like booking flights, um, like yeah, just like claiming, you know, if I had to change dates basically for any flights, I was doing that from my tri bars, and so. I was like, it's like so difficult to even think, let alone string sentences together and like work dates out. So that would be, that would be like four days worth of headspace oh, that you're trying to work that stuff out. And you only really know when you're maybe like six days out, like actually what is the, what, what am I looking at here? What flight could I get? Because you don't want to book one too late because then you'll have time. Like you need it to yeah, be literally 
just finishing and getting on a plane. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. I hadn't even thought about the fact that transit time counts as your time, right? So yeah, yeah you really want to minimize any downtime at all. Yeah. That's nuts. Um, <laughs> this was clearly an incredible experience. So what was your favorite spot? Where was the favorite place you rode through? I mean, Siberia, Mongolia, and China just blew me away. Their culture just was like the most foreign places I'd ever, ever been to. Um, and there was moments in there that I felt like I was watching myself just travel through the, these places, like I was in a film or something. It was like, this is so insane. Um, and then landscape-wise, it was like coming down like Alaska and into the Yukon. Just the grandeur of it all. It was so big and I just felt so tiny and like everything around me was gigantic like these RVs these bears these moose <laughs> these bison it was just like everything was giant and I felt like just a tiny little speck on the planet and it was so beautiful and you know I, I felt very at home there I think the the Asian side of things, I was definitely a visitor. I was definitely a foreigner. Um, but whereas in Alaska and the Yukon, I I just felt like like it was a step removed from home, if you like. It was like related to Scotland. You know, it was so so familiar, but bigger, but much bigger. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't want to take away from people wanting to read the book, but I, I'm. I'm curious, maybe just like the super short version of it. Like, what was the biggest takeaway for you from all of this? Of the world. Or yourself, whatever. Pick one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think it's that, you know, for me, questioning what I could do. And I thought at the beginning, I can do that. Like, I've got that ability to cycle around the world. But to say that I would was going to go for the record, that was the big chat. Like, that was the, you know, I'm very ordinary working class women from the highlands of Scotland with no sporting ability or, you know, or like background. Um, so was I good enough to think that I could go and do this? And that was like a continual battle for me on the build up um, about putting myself out there and saying, actually, you know, I think I'm here. I really struggled with that. And then when I did it and I came back and I'm just like, oh my God, we are all capable of so much more, you know, just like, and opportunities are everything and people being kind and open and um, like helping along the way. It's just like all those helping hands that get you to the start line of something like that. And so that takeaway for me is like looking at people very differently now and just seeing that actually like trying to see their potential or trying to definitely trying to help it, help them if they've already seen it and just, yeah, just think, well, if I can do that, like, what, you know, what can we all do? Yeah, that's awesome. So definitely anybody listening, check the show notes. We'll have a link to the book and, you know, some photos and a few other fun things in there. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about the just the business side of things, the financial side of things, because oh, yeah. I'm, I'm curious, right? So people who are thinking about doing anything even remotely close to this, probably have to think about, okay, time off from work and, you know, just other stuff. And then if you're thinking about writing a book, right, like what are the economics of that? But so what was your job leading into this? What were you doing? 
So I worked in children's services. So I worked with young people that were not in mainstream education. And my department was social work and education come together um, and health. And uh, yeah, like 14 to 16 year olds were mostly who we were looking after at the time. And I'd worked there for... 12 years, I think. So, you know, I knew everyone. I knew the system. I knew my boss really well. And he gave me a sabbatical. So I didn't get paid for it, but I could take the time off and go back to my job if it if it didn't work out. Um, so I, I got six months. So that was my time frame. I was like six months off. Um, and yeah, so I did that. I um, My son moved out when I was preparing for Round the World, I think because he knew what an absolute nightmare it would be. <laughs> and then he moved back in as I, just before I left. So then like the, you know, our flat was taken care of. And, and it's that thing of like, I did didn't actually have massive outgoings. I don't have massive outgoings. You know, I don't have... I, I don't live um, in a way that like I've got all these possessions like, I don't hardly own anything except for, you know, a couple of bikes. And um, so it's not like... Yeah, it's not like leaving, uh, you know, like stopping your funds coming in when you've got all these outgoings. Like, I live quite a simple life, I think. Yeah, um, low overhead. Low overhead, yeah, yeah, for that very reason. Yeah, I, I think that's the key to true freedom, right? Is low overhead and, you know, having something you can do from anywhere. So after the trip, did you go back to the job or is now kind of like content and media and books the, the thing you do? Yeah, I mean, it is now, but I did go back to the job um, and for like two months and it was amazing because it was like nine to four, Monday to Friday, and it was so grounding. It was unbelievable working with teenagers who were like, really needed you to be there. So that was cool. Um, and then, yeah, I just started getting all these opportunities that that meant that I could, you know, start uh speaking um like giving talks going to festivals um running courses for other women and bike packing um i i hooked up with global cycling network gcn they gave me like a job as a presenter nice. in on on their um on their documentaries channel so then i was learning all about that and then the book stuff came up and i was like oh yeah if i'm going to write a book i need to do it now so um, and then I met, yeah, I met um, quite a few friends who've written books. So um, they put me in touch with one of the, like what one of their um, agents, James Spackman. Um, and so, yeah, and then I put the idea to him and then, you know, it was such a long process. Because like I said at the start, this wasn't like, uh, you know, I wasn't bursting with words that I had to get out on the on the page. It was literally like pulling them out of me, um, because it was such a highly personal and a sort of story that I couldn't just like die deep go into on a surface level. Like everything is really, really deep, I suppose. Um, and so anyway, I knocked that about with him for a few months, and then he was like, "Right, I think we've got a pitch. Let's get it out to." like Bloomsbury were the first people he asked and uh, they took it. They nice. they were like, yeah, we love it. Yeah. So did you have Croft. to go back and listen to all of your audio recordings and just start kind of like transcribing that stuff? Or 
So I tried to, but then my mum and stepdad uh, during lockdown made it their project. Nice. And they, I was going to put it to a company and my mum was like, no, no, that we know your voice. Like we know your voice much more, uh, much better. So then they did that. And I, I mean, they said they really loved it, but some of the stuff I was saying, I'm like, oh my oh, God, sure. it must have been so traumatic. Like so <laughs> traumatic listening to that. <laughs> yeah, that's why I was curious. Like when you heard it back, were you like, what? What in the world was happening right there? <laughs> so annoying. And like when I when I listen to it back, um, I can either be impatient or I can read through what I'm at, what I'm saying, and remember what I meant. Because all my audio and all my videos were going straight back to like people at home who were then editing it and putting it out on the radio or who were keeping bits for film. And I was really conscious that I have a San, mam, sister back home and I didn't want them hearing things about maybe how scared I was or like actually how I really did feel when I was getting shunted off the road. So I would just like package it up. I would be like, oh, this has happened, but everything's okay. And like that was partly just to deal with it myself and partly to support them. And so sometimes when I can read, uh, hear it, I'm like, oh, I know that you, I know that that was deeper than you're letting on. Like, yeah. So, and also I stop halfway through sentences all the time. Have you ever listened to yourself <laughs> just having a conversation? It's like ridiculous. No, yeah. I, I, fortunately I have somebody to edit these podcasts, so I don't, I, I trust uh -huh. him enough that I don't even have to listen to them, <laughs> them again, unless there's like a real issue he doesn't know how to deal with. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, well, awesome. Jenny, thank you so much for sharing your story and um, I appreciate your time. Amazing. It's been lovely sharing with you. Thanks a million. If you like this episode and have a product or tech you're curious about, head over to bikerumor.com slash podcast and fill in the form to submit your idea. You'll also find links and photos for this episode there, plus a link to this and every other episode we've ever recorded. If you really like this and want more, hit subscribe on your favorite podcast player and leave us a rating and review. That's the grease that keeps our wheels spinning over here in podcast land, and it helps us keep getting amazing guests for you. You can find us on social. We're at Bike Rumor on all the things. And if you like random entrepreneurship, NFT, Web3, cycling stuff, you'll find me at Tyler Benedict on all the social channels. Thanks for listening. Until next time, keep the rubber side down.